Please take out your Bibles and stand for the reading of God's word. Today we will be be reading from Colossians 1, 15 through 23. In the Pew Bibles, that's on page 983. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that is everything he might that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. The word of the Lord. Hey, good morning, Calvary. It's good to see all of you here. And uh, I am excited for this morning. Um, first, though, I want to say uh, thank you to Pastor Manfred. I don't know if he's in here. He was in first service. But Pastor Manfred, if you see him, just make sure you thank him for all the work that he's been doing for Missions Month uh, for us. And uh, for sure. And uh, it's a lot of extra work for him uh, to pull it off. All of our missionaries were in last week, and he spends a lot of time with that. But I'm also very grateful uh, to him because he uh, is the primary driver on our pulpit supply, if that's the right term, uh, throughout the month of December or November uh, to find speakers uh, that are going to come and help uh, charge us up and encourage us in our collective calling as a church to engage in missions. And um, last week, uh, if you were here, you know we had the great privilege of having Pastor John uh, with us from Greater, Greater Europe Mission, and uh, that was such an encouraging time here uh, last week for him to listen to Pastor John preach. You, you all didn't know this, but Pastor John uh, called Pastor Manfred on Saturday morning and said, I'm, I'm not feeling well, I'm sick, I'm going to try to come, but I don't know if I'm going to make it. And uh, so he, he did come, but I saw him Sunday morning and I said, how are you feeling? He said, I'm at 80%. So that was Pastor John at 80% last week. So you can imagine uh, if we had had him at 100% uh, last week. But he's a great guy, and, and uh, I'm so encouraged by the folks that, that Pastor Manfred has been able to, to find uh, to come and bring God's Word to us. Because Pastor John, is a, he, he's not, he has no shortage of places to go and to preach. And so it was a great privilege to have him with us uh, last week. And the same is true for this morning. And uh, Pastor Hannibal, some of you may uh, know of him, uh, but if not, you will very likely know of Wheaton Bible Church, uh, which is to the west of us. It's a larger uh, church, and uh, I have gotten to know Pastor Hannibal uh, 
over the past year or so, uh, we had lunch uh, together, a number of our staff and their staff, uh, connecting out at Wheaton Bible, and uh, I was just very impressed uh, with him, and he's new senior pastor at Wheaton Bible Church, uh, just started in April of this year, though he has been out there uh, ministering at Wheaton Bible for many years. And, um, and I always find it impressive when pastors from larger churches uh, come and minister in smaller churches. And if you know anything about Wheaton Bible, it's, uh, you know, maybe 75% larger uh, than we are. Well, more than that, actually, quite a bit more than that. And um, just really encouraged uh, by Pastor Hannibal being willing to come out here and, and preach for us and bring God's Word for us. And uh, he just has struck me as a, as a man of true humility who really understands what it means to be loved by God and to love other people. And so I'm really uh, encouraged to have him uh, here with us this morning. So it's not uh, typical that we clap when uh, pastors come up and preach, but I think it would be appropriate for us to acknowledge uh, the gift that God has given us in having Pastor Hannibal with us this morning. So if you would join me in welcoming Pastor Hannibal uh, this morning, let's welcome him up. All right. Good morning, familia. For those of you who don't know what the word familia means, um, you have no idea what a privilege it is for me to be here. Uh, this is a church that I truly uh, deeply respect and admire for a while now. Uh, I've known of you guys for a while. I actually participated uh, as an attendee in one of the conferences a few years ago. And I've been super impressed for what the Lord has been doing in you and through you. All right, so last week, how many of you guys were here last week? Raise your hand. All right, just so you know, I'm going to prep you here because me being a minority, I need the church's participation. Now, the first service, they were really animated, really good animated, uh, so you better do better than them. Um, so, uh, once again, thanks for having me here. Uh, I know that you didn't have a say-so on that, <laughs> and I know it wasn't your choice, but it's, it's still really nice to say thanks for having me here. Uh, let, me, let me start by telling you a little bit about myself, since we're going to spend uh, the next two hours together. Um, <laughs> that's a Latino's bridge, just so you know. Uh, I'm Colombian. Uh, my mother is from Colombia, but my dad is from Chile. Uh, so I have both of those bloods inside of me. But my grandmother from my mom's side is Ecuadorian. So I also have a little bit of uh, Ecuadorian blood within me. I lived in Colombia for the first uh, 13 years of my life, and then I moved to Ecuador, in which I lived for about two years. And, uh, and around age 17, I moved to Chicago. Uh, my mom, my brother, my sister, and I, uh, my father was lost in action somewhere in the world. A um, couple of years later, after I came here, I met uh, a Guatemalan girl. Uh, and we started this relationship. And after doing that time, I was 19 and she was 16. I was a super senior, which some people call when you go an extra year of senior. There's reasons for that. Don't, <laughs> don't judge me. Um, and we started this relationship and some people started saying to me, Hannibal, that relationship is illegal. 1916. To which I respond, me no English. And that settled. Um, Six years later, I married this beautiful girl. And now we have two girls. One, is, her name is Camila, 17. My older one is uh, Alejandra, 14. So Heidi, Camila, and Alejandra. 
Um, and both of my girls are high schoolers, so prayers appreciated. Um, and now these two girls have inside of them Colombian, Chilean, Ecuadorian, and Guatemalan blood. And they were born in the United States, in Chicago, which there's a ton of Mexicans. So these poor girls have an identity crisis. Um, and yet, one of the most beautiful things that they have is that their primary identity is not that they are Colombian, Chilean, Ecuadorian, Guatemalan, and American, but that their primary identity is that they are Christians. Amen? Everything else is secondary after that. Amen? All right, let's get to work then. Um, the text we read today is considered by some scholars a poem or a hymn or a creed. Uh, and regardless of what it is, uh, Paul wrote it with the intention, probably, for his church or Christ's church to recite it and to remember it. Uh, Paul is writing this letter from prison, and the purpose of the letter was to correct or to prevent the church from absorbing or believing a set of false teachings that were going around at that time. See, some of those false teachings had to do with the denying of the deity of Jesus Christ. And instead, what they were doing is that they were teaching kind of a syncretism, a mix of Christianity and Judaism and some uh, folk beliefs, if you will. Um, and they're putting all these things together. And Paul, like a good teacher, like a good pastor theologian, um, instead of attacking the enemy, per se, what he did is he elevated the truth about Christ, what, who Jesus is, what Jesus came to do, and what Jesus will do. See, throughout history, this is what pastors and theologians have done. Whenever there is false teachings in the community of faith, instead of attacking people, the tendency is to elevate the truth. And this is part of the reason why we have so many Christian confessions. It's to elevate truth so people can see the difference between what is false and what is biblical. Now, the reason why I chose the passage that we read today is because you, has, you guys have been talking as a church about living in light of the end. And if you noticed, the text that we read this morning, right in the heart of that text, you find these verses in verse 19 and 20. You find these words in verses 19 and 20. For in him, Jesus... All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him, Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things. Can you say all things? Amen. Whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. See, that phrase, all things, is the common denominator of this section. In verse 16, for example... It says that it was by him, Jesus, that all things were created. All things were created through him and for him. Paul is saying here that Jesus is the agent of, the crea of this creation. And that the creation was created for Jesus, for the glory of Jesus. In verse 17, it says that he, Jesus, is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. Meaning that Jesus existed before the creation existed. And that Jesus is the one that holds and sustains everything in this creation. In verse 18, he does not use the phrase all things. But instead he uses the, the word everything. Which is a synonym. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Talking about the resurrection. 
that in everything he might be preeminent. And this is Paul's way of saying that it is through the death of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ that a new age has begun. That we are all part of the new beginning of creation, if, if I am allowed to say that phrase. The new genesis, if you will. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the inauguration of an age to come. That when Jesus dies and resurrects, now God through him is reconciling all things through the blood of his cross. So if we think about what it means to live in light of the end, we have to keep in mind that that's part of the reason why Jesus died and resurrected. So it's the beginning of the reconciliation of all things. N.T. Wright calls this the day the revolution began. After Jesus died and resurrected, the reconciliation of all things began. Now, in light of that, I'm asking the text three questions. Number one, what does the reconciliation of all things mean? Number two, what's our call as a church if we are part of the inauguration of this age to come? What is it that we're called to do? And number three, how do we, how do we become the people that we already are? Number one, what does the reconciliation of all things mean? Number two, what's our role as a church as we are part of the inauguration of the new age? And how do we become the people that we already are? So I need you to do me a favor. Can you look at the person next to you if you like that person? If, if not, don't do it. But if you like that person, could you ask the question, are you ready for this? Let's go. That was, that was kind of depressing, people. <laughs> first service did much better, just so you know. Let's go with the first question. What does the reconciliation of all things mean? I think that in order for us to answer this question... We really, really, really need to understand what Paul means by the phrase, all things. So listen up, because this is extremely important. It's actually something that I never shared before, just so you know. Top secret. The phrase, all things, in the original, means this. All things! Is <laughs> that when Jesus died and resurrected... He, he did this for the reconciliation of everything he created, both the physical and the non-physical part of this creation. That when Jesus resurrected was the beginning of a new age in which God is bringing everything back into, his, into, into the creation original design. See, the way it was in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, in which everything that God created was good. See, the God, what God wants from this creation is a creation that experiences once again what it, they experience in Genesis chapter, chapter 1 and chapter 2. Shalom. The peace that goes beyond understanding. See, this is similar to the word that we heard and we read in verse 20, in which he says that Jesus died and resurrected to bring peace. Shalom. That God wants for this creation that all the four broken relationships that happened in Genesis chapter 3 may be restored. See, in Genesis chapter 3, our relationship with God got broken. Our relationship with ourselves got broken, the way we see ourselves. Our relationship with one another got broken. And our relationship with creation got broken. This is the way Tim Keller puts it. 
God created all things to be in a beautiful, harmonious, interdependent, needed, wept relationship to one another. This interwomenness is what the Bible calls shalom, a harmonious peace, meaning complete reconciliation, a state of fullness flourishing in every dimension, physical, emotional, social, and spiritual. That's what shalom means. And when Jesus dies and resurrects, that's, this is what he, what he comes to bring. See, the resurrection guarantees that at one point, the promise in Isaiah 11 is going to be completely fulfilled. The place and the time in which the wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, and the child will lead them. A place and a time in which the infant will play with the cobra's den, near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. A time and a place in which the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters covers the sea. Amen? A place and a time in which there's no more crying, no more weeping, no more suffering, no more death, no more shame, no more guilt, no more broken relationships, no more interrupted worship, no more division, disunion, and no more broken hearts. Amen? A place and a time in which creation, Romans 8 says, that will stop groaning. A place and a time in which nothing is tainted by sin. All motives are pure. All things are done for the glory of God and the well-being of others. A place and a time in which the presence of sin is no more. And all the dignity and the value that all human beings have, because they have been created in the image of God, are both honored and respected. Meaning, no more poverty, no more corruption, no more injustice, no more prejudice, no more racism, no more classism. A place and a time in which people from every nation, from all the tribes and people and languages stand before the throne of God and before the Lamb, of Je- and before the Lamb Jesus, living lives of worship. A time and a place that Revelation 21 calls the new heavens and the new earth. The place where the sea is no more. That's why we say that there's no destruction. The place called the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. A time and a place in which the widow is protected, the hungry satisfied, the thirsty finds relief, the stranger is welcomed, the naked is clothed, and the sick is healed, and the prisoner is set free. See, all of that is what Paul has in mind when he talks about the reconciliation of all things. See, some theologians call this cosmic salvation or cosmic redemption. Some other theologians prefer the term of cosmic restoration or cosmic renewal, the pacification of all things. This is what is interesting. Throughout church history, Every time, every time there has been a revival, some of this thing is part of what the church is living. So, for example, the theologian Richard Lovelace wrote a book called The Evangelical Theology of Renewal, and it's basically a survey of church history when it comes to revivals. And he says that in every revival, there was four things always present. The gospel was at the center of everything. The church, the local church, was always important. Theological understanding was always important. And loving both in word and deed was always important. 
See, what Richard Lovelace says is that an evidence that the presence of God is there is that all these things happen and that the prayer of Jesus Christ is fulfilled. That heaven looks like earth, like earth looks like heaven. And that his will will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. The reconciliation of all things. Now, I don't know how much time you have spent thinking about that. I don't know how much time you have spent thinking and dreaming and embracing what is yet to come. But I could tell you that we don't have the ability nor the capacity to grasp the magnitude of that. The reason why I'm saying that is because we have never been in a place in which sin is not present. We have never had a relationship that is in which sin is not present. We have never had an experience in which sin is not present. Our minds are so limited because of the condition of our hearts and the brokenness of this world. And yet, deep down inside, we all want that. And every good experience we have here... It's kind of an echo or a signpost that points us to that. So the way I would put it in a simple term is the best is yet to come. That's the reason why nothing satisfies here. That's the reason why nothing is good enough here. This is the reason why we always want more and we need more because we are not designed to live in a world the way it is. The best is yet to come. And this is a crazy thing, that that plan is already in motion. The here and not yet nature of the kingdom of God is already in motion because Jesus died and resurrected. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Revelation chapter 21, verse 5, in which he says that God is making everything new, present progressive. God is making Everything new. Now, let me give you two reasons why that should be, if you are a believer, why that should be super important. Number one, because if that is true, and it is, because the Bible says it is, you could always find beauty in the midst of brokenness. You could always find beauty in the midst of brokenness. If you really pay attention, you can always find what the Lord is already doing. Therefore, you never have permission as a Christian for pessimism. Because the Lord is always doing something. All you have to do is to stop and pay attention. And at the same time, you don't have permission for unrealistic optimism. You know why? Because we're still living in a broken world. Utopia cannot happen here. Utopia would only happen when Jesus comes back and makes all things new again. That's the first reason why you need to keep that in mind. The second reason why you need to keep that in mind is because that is the only possible way in which you can actually live in this broken world without becoming a pessimistic. I mean, just look around. Just look at the church in the last year. Just look at everything that we have gone through, and you will see, unless you embrace this with your mind and your heart, it is easy for us to become either skeptics or people full of pessimism. Spurgeon would say that sometimes when we cannot see the hand of God, 
We must trust his heart. And in God's heart, he promises that the best is yet to come. So I'm going to share with you something that I do for my own spiritual growth um, that I think is going to help you. So this is family, right? How many of you guys sometimes feel that life is just way too complicated? Raise your hand. Okay, how many of you guys are holy enough and you never struggle like that? <laughs> Let me tell you what I do. Sometimes when things get super complicated, I apply here the same principle that I apply when I'm watching a movie. Watch here. I love movies. I don't mind watching movies by myself. I don't need to watch movies with anybody else. But sometimes when the movie gets complicated, when I don't understand the storyline, when I don't know who's the main character and who's not, when I'm trying to see who's going to end up with whom and all these things, when the movie gets super complicated, I do an exercise, a very spiritual thing. I grab the remote control, and I fast forward. <laughs> all the way to the end. And then I watch the end of the movie. And once I know how the story ends, I go back to where I was before, and I finish the story free of the pressure of the unknown. Now, listen, some of you would think, man, Hannibal, you're killing the movie. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm applying a biblical principle to the way I watch a movie. <laughs> you know why I say that? Because we know how the story ends. We know what the Lord is going to do. We know that at the end of the days, God wins. And that he's already accomplishing that. And that we're part of the reconciliation of all things. And then at the end of the day, everything truly, truly is going to be okay. Even if I can't see it. So in light of that, how is it that we're supposed to live? Question number two. What's our call as a church if we are part of the inauguration of the age to come? Now, we didn't read this, but in chapter 1, verse 6... Paul says that the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world, is bearing fruit and increasing. Keep that phrase in mind. Later on in verses 9 and 10, Paul is praying for this church. And his prayer is that they may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Pay attention to this phrase. Bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And you find the phrase bearing fruit and increasing in two different occasions. And almost every single scholar would agree that Paul is borrowing the concept found in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, in which the Lord calls Adam and Eve, uh, this is before the fall, to be fruitful and multiply. That is repeated again after the fall to Noah, in Genesis chapter 8, verse 17, it is repeated again to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17, verse 20, and it's repeated again to the Israelites in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 16. What is interesting, though, is that something that was before the fall and was applied to the, in the Old Testament times after the fall, now Paul is applying the same thing to us here today in the New Testament church. 
And this is what people will call, theologians, scholars will call, the cultural mandate or the creation mandate. Look at what Paul says, how the church is supposed to live in light of what is yet to come. It's basically this, that God blesses his people and he sends, and he sends his people into the world to contribute to the flourishing of this creation. He calls the church to use our talents and abilities and gifts for the common good, to cultivate and create and to bring beauty, to live out the great commandment and the great commission, to care for the body and for the soul, to love in word and in deed. That's kind of the same thing that Jesus said in one of the Gospels when he talks about the church about being salt and light. Meaning that if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you have a dual responsibility in this creation to bring flavor to this creation and to restrain evil. That we are here to contribute to what the Lord is already doing. That we are called to join God in what he's already doing as he's making all things new. That the church of Jesus Christ cannot just stand back and let everything go. That the church of Jesus Christ is called to get into this world and bring flavor and restrain evil. This is why evangelism matters. And I don't have to talk about that because John talked about that last week. But this is why indifference cannot be something that the church practices. Do you know what is the opposite of love? It's not hate. The opposite of love is indifference. Because in indifference, you treat people like if they don't exist. Or you treat people like if they don't have dignity and value created in the image of God. See, the church ought to love in word and deed. And this is part of the reason why caring for the poor, the afflicted, the widow, the stranger, and the vulnerable matters. Did you know that what made the church in the first century such a powerful movement was precisely because they care for the vulnerable? A great book to read. I'm assuming that you guys heard of it before. A great book to read is by Randy Stark, which is a sociologist that later on, I believe, became a Christian He wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity in which he shows how first century Christians in the midst of a pandemic, church, uh, while people were running away from the sick, the Christians were running toward the sick, literally taking upon themselves the sickness that people had, imitating the way our Lord and Jesus Christ loves See, God does not know how to love from the distance. Jesus comes in and gets in the midst of mess and literally takes what we deserve and we have. Evangelism matters. Indifference is not an option. Caring for the vulnerable matters. And therefore also justice matters. Proverbs 29, 7 says, The righteous care for, about justice for the poor, but the wicked have no, no such concern. 
In the book of Proverbs, the word righteous means someone that is willing to disadvantage him or herself for the sake of others. This is the same reason why God is scolding the Israelites when they were doing all these religious celebrations. And in Isaiah chapter 58, he says, Is not this the fast that I chose? To lose the bonds of the wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share with your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, you cover him and do not hide yourself from your own flesh? Doesn't that sound similar to what Jesus says in Matthew 25? In which he's confronting the religious leaders of the time and literally told them that their attitude toward the vulnerable is their attitude toward God. For I was hungry and you did not give me food. I was thirsty and you did not give me a drink. I was stranger and you did not welcome me. I was naked and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And the religious leader says, when did we do that, Lord? When you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it to me. Evangelism matters. Indifference is not an option. Caring for the vulnerable is not an option. Justice matters. And work matters. See, God calls us to work as part of the cultural mandate. God puts humanity to work before the fall. So working is not a punishment, church. It's part of what it means to be a human being in this world. And this is not just about how you work, but that you work. And for some of you, the Lord is using your job um, to bring redemption to this creation. For some of you, the Lord is using the job for you to bring creativity into this creation. The Lord is using your career as a way to provide for this creation. For some of you, God is using your career to bring justice into this creation. For some of you, the Lord is using your job to exercise compassion in this creation. See, your job is your vocation. It is part of what the Lord is using as he's reconciling all things in this creation. You know, the first time I heard about this was about, um, I would say, 20-something years ago. I was a teacher then. I was working in the city of Chicago, city of Chicago, um, uh, and I, was, I got hired to work in a third-grade bilingual classroom for obvious reasons. When I get to the school, like a typical Chicago public school system, I was no longer teaching a third grade bilingual classroom. I was teaching a sixth grade monolingual classroom. Now imagine the surprise. And I never understood why that happened. In my heart, I was just complaining, this is such a mess. Why am I doing working in this district? But the Lord had better plans. See, because I understood that my job was my vocation, or at least part of my vocation, I knew that the Lord has placed me there to bring, to bring beauty in the midst of brokenness. And I had one student, he named, his name was Eduardo. I haven't been able to see him in 20-something years. I hope I get to see him one day. And he was a kid that repeated third grade, 
and was repeated already sixth grade for the third time. So this man looked like a grown man. Facial hair, all these things in the middle of a, of a bunch of 11-year-old kids. What is interesting is that the teacher prior to me had informed me that I had to be extra careful with Eduardo because he was a handful. By God's grace, the Lord gave me grace enough for me to really care about this kid. And not just for his grades, but because of his soul. And he graduated not just from my class, but from middle school. And that changed my life. It changed my perspective of what it meant to be a teacher. Your, matter, your work matters. You have been placed there where you are for the glory of God and the well-being of others. You are where you are for the glory of God and to bring and participate in the reconciliation of all things. This is the reason why Blaise Pascal would say that Christians have the responsibility to make religion attractive. This is what he says. People almost invariably arrive at their beliefs not on the basis of proof, but on the basis of what they find attractive. Make religion, therefore, attractive. Make men and women wish it were true and then show that it is. I'm sure that you have heard the short story of J.R.R. Tolkien, Live by Niggle. It's, about, it's the story about this man, this artist, that wanted to paint the perfect tree. And he started with a little leaf, and he put all his effort and energy and painting this little leaf to the best of his abilities. And he took so long to finish this leaf that he passed away and never even got to the tree. So one day, as he's walking around the streets of heaven, I believe, he sees from the distance the tree that he had been dreaming about. And he gets to the tree, and guess what he found there? His leaf. And at that moment, he understood that his job was not to paint the tree. That was God's business. His job was to paint that leaf. That's your call. That's my call. If God is making all things new, if God is reconciliating, reconciliating all things, your job and my job is to contribute to whatever capacity we can. And the Lord is using that to bring the restoration of all things, the renewal of all things. In the midst of a culture that tells you that bigger is better. Be faithful and a good steward to where the Lord called you to be. Share the word. Don't, ex don't, don't be indifferent. Care for the poor. Care for justice. Care for your neighbors. Work the way you're supposed to work. So here's a couple, of a couple of questions that I think you should ask yourself. Do you believe that the Lord saved you 
for a more comprehensive purpose than just making your life better. Do you believe that the Lord saved you and redeemed you for a bigger purpose than just you? Do you care about your neighbors from a both physical and non-physical perspective? Do you know how to love in word and deed? Let me make it even more personal. If you as an individual or you as a family were to move out of your neighborhood, would your neighbors miss you? If us as a church were to move out of Oak Park, would Oak Park miss us? Do you know how to see the image of God in people, even when you can see their brokenness? See, we never define people by their brokenness. We define and treat people because in them we see the image of God. Do you see your work as a vocation? See, on one end, we understand that God is reconciling all things. And on the other end, we understand and believe that we do have a responsibility to contribute to that as followers of Jesus. And the third question is, how do we become then the people that we already are? Now, the reason why I'm framing that question like that is because I am convinced that a motivation sermon doesn't change people. So even if you feel motivated right now, by the time you leave that door, you're going to fight with your neighbor or your kids or your spouse, and motivation is going to go away. So motivation doesn't work to change your heart. But neither guilt is helpful to change your heart. You know why? Because by the time you leave this place, you will stop feeling guilty. Or actually, you will start justifying yourself. Yeah, well, Hannibal doesn't know who my neighbor is. Guilt doesn't work either. I mean, for those of you that are parents, you know that doesn't work. The only way that we are transformed is when our mind is transformed. And because, because our mind is transformed, our heart is affected. And once our mind is transformed and our heart is affected, then your will is modified. And this is part of the reason why Paul then... Right between this, this thing that says that God is making all things new, he puts the gospel first and then he puts the gospel at the end. In a way of saying that the only way we are going to change is when we have the gospel before everything and we put the gospel after everything. Look at what happened in verse 13. He says that Jesus has delivered us from the domain, or God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Before he talks anything else, he says that in Jesus, we are being rescued, redeemed, forgiven, and we have a new nature. You have been transferred. You are no longer the same person if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ. You are completely forgiven, completely accepted, completely redeemed, therefore completely adopted, and with a complete different nature. And then at the end, in verses 21 and 22, he says this, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, 
He has now reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And Paul reminds us that in Jesus Christ we are being reconciled. And that we have received what theologians call imputed righteousness. That when God the Father sees you, he sees you in Jesus Christ. And he sees you holy and blameless and above reproach. You know how crazy that is? Because we all know that that is not true. And yet, that's exactly how the Father sees you in Jesus. You have nothing to gain. You have it all in Jesus Christ. And you have nothing to lose. All is secure in Jesus Christ. Now, go into the world and love well. Now, go into the world. World and continue to and contribute to what the Lord is already doing. Make your religion look attractive. And then explain to people why your religion is attractive. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, what a beautiful gift it is to know, Lord, that there is nothing for us to gain and there is nothing for us to lose. Because in Jesus Christ, we have everything that we could possibly want and everything that we already have and are could never be taken away from us. I'm so grateful, Lord, for your mercy and your grace. I'm so grateful, Lord, for your redemption. I'm so grateful, Lord, that you have forgiven our sins and you never remember them. I'm so grateful, Lord, that our, our, our record has been completely erased and clean. I'm so grateful, Lord, that in Jesus... You love us just the same way, the same way you love your son. I'm praying, Lord, that as a congregation, we leave out what we already are. And that you allow us, Lord, to contribute to what you are already doing in this creation. At the same time, Lord, I pray that we remember that nothing here satisfies because the best is yet to come. We are pilgrims, strangers in this land, waiting for the adoption of our bodies and souls when Jesus returns and everything looks beautiful and is perfect again. And we pray for all of this in the name of Jesus and we all say, 